But in many countries, there have been evidences that uh, governments against which activists were protesting were able to infiltrate through their police forces, the, uh, telegram groups, uh, and to arrest people because they were gathering evidence through telegram. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Stark. In today's episode, we are very excited to welcome Alice Mattoni on the podcast. Alice is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Bologna in Italy. In 2018, she received a large grant from the European Research Council to study the creation and use of digital media by civil society actors to fight corruption. You can find the link to the project in the show notes. In the interview, Niels and I discuss with Alice the nature of anti-corruption movements and the role that digital media play in them. So let's jump right in. Alice, we are very excited to have you today on the podcast. It's been overdue, let's say, because uh, you've been on our list of potential guests for a very long time. In uh, 2019, I met uh, Donatella della Porta at a conference in Hamburg, and um, and we talked a little bit about the podcast even before the podcast launched. And she said, at one time, you have to talk to Alice Mattoni. She just received a big grant on corruption. So uh, two years later, we re finally realized this opportunity to talk to you. So Alice, welcome to Kickback. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Great. Maybe to, to start us off, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, how you became interested in the topic and what fascinated you about the topic of corruption? Yeah, thank you. So I, I began to study corruption from uh, the perspective of a social movement scholar, because I have always studied social movements and the way in which they come together. Uh, the way in which they organize, mobilize the effects that they might have on uh, societies. And on top of this, how they use media at large, so not just digital media, but all kinds of media to organize and to reach their objectives. Okay, so this is uh, what I have always done since I was uh, basically a PhD student. And then in 2012, I began to work as a, a postdoctoral assistant to Donatella della Porta in uh, uh, the Anticorp uh, research project at the European University Institute. And there I began to delve into these movements uh, uh, against corruption in Italy, my country, the country where I am still actually based. And in doing this, of course, I was also uh, investigating Uh, not only anti-corruption, but also uh, organized crime and specifically civil society organizations that were uh, fighting against organized crime because in Italy, the link between corruption and organized crime is particularly strong. Uh, of course, I'm speaking about, of course, uh, organized crime organizations like Mafia, Ndrangheta, Sacra Corona Unita and, and Camorra, which are the, the four most relevant organized crime organizations that we have. So I began to study this type of civil society organizations, and I realized that they were completely different from the social movements organization that I studied so far. I was mostly interested till that point on 
workers' movements and specifically precarious workers' movements uh, that were resourceless, uh, marginalized, uh, and uh, had a lot of difficulties to organize. But that what they did was uh, uh, using public protest to a great extent. While when I began to look at social movements, uh, organizations working on corruption and organized crime, what I noticed was that they were not using public protest a lot in Italy, at least in Italy. And this was fascinating for me because there were, in any case, movement organizations, civil society organizations, but they were not using public protest as their main pillar around which they organized uh, their collective actions. And from there, uh, I began to, you know, to, to study more and more, not just uh, civil society against corruption, but also corruption in itself. Although I, I, I would not dare to say that I'm an expert on corruption. Uh, I'm more of an expert on social movements, of course. But of course, I needed to understand the issue that was at stake. And uh, here is when I found something that I think is really, really fascinating that connects the two fields of studies. And this is the very issue of collective action. So we know that in corruption studies, frequently corruption is defined as a collective action problem. That is to say, if everybody else around me in my country basically engage in corrupt behaviors, then I would be more inclined to do this by myself. And this is really to simplify, okay, the collective action problem. Uh, when we look at social movements instead, uh, we also find collective action as basically even the problem of collective action, it has been the trigger of social movement studies to, to some extent, because the main question there is how happens that people decide to come together and act collectively to face a common grievance, for instance, when they could be not doing this and free rides on others who would engage in that collective action and have the benefits in any case. So this is basically the big questions that we have in social movement studies. So how is collective action possible? Uh, and why people decide to engage in collective action. So you see that here you have two different takes on collective action. In corruption studies, it is seen as a, a problem, while in social movement studies is seen rather as a, the potential solution to many different problems. And uh, not just looking at corruption in itself, but looking rather at anti-corruption I see the connection between the two sides of the same coin uh, related to collective action. And this is at the more theoretical level, of course, uh, what is very fascinating for me and very interesting. Two fields of studies that rarely spoke one to another, that, in, that when we look at their roots, we see these same concepts there, treated in slightly different ways, but that can connect them. And uh, this is the reason why I, I really enjoy doing research on uh, social movements and movement organizations that fight against corruption. Yeah, this is fascinating, Alice. Um, maybe as a follow-up question, what is something that maybe corruption scholars can learn from research on social movements 
And one, when is a social movement a successful social movement? When what makes a social movement succeed? And and when would you say such a success is reached? I mean, I realize those were many questions. Pick any or all of them, <laughs> but we I think that would be very relevant for our audience to to learn about. I would begin from the first one, that is what uh, corruption scholars might learn from social movement studies. I think that social movement studies really went really in-depth in trying to understand what happens when people come together, which are the conditions that trigger collective action, mobilizations, and so on. So they basically developed a toolkit, a conceptual toolkit Uh, that is very sophisticated, I would say, uh, to speak about uh, what, what movement organizations are and what do, what do they do and how they do what they do. And so this means that when we look at anti-corruption from the perspective of social movement studies, we might see that actually when we speak about, uh, for instance, uh, movement organizations against corruption, we are speaking about things that might be very, very different one from the other. So movement organization are an umbrella term that we might use that is very general. But when we look more in depth, we discover that there are many kinds of movement organization and each of them has its own potential and also pitfalls when engaging in anti-corruption. So it is different, very different if we look at uh, a movement organization that is uh, vertically organized in a hierarchical way with a lot of resources to be managed, also at the material level. So I mean economic resources, not just uh, human resources, in opposition to a movement organization that is more kind of horizontally organized and uh, without resources. So when we Once you understand anti-corruption, for instance, taking these differences into consideration would let us know better which are the potentials that these organizations have and what they can do and what they cannot do also uh, when addressing corruption, for instance, and through which patterns they can organize and how they can organize. So this is just one tiny example about what we can learn from social movement studies when we want to understand anti-corruption. The fact that we need to consider the differences amongst the different actors in civil society, that when we use the labels like civil society actors or movement organizations, we are actually referring uh, to a group that is not homo internally homogeneous. It's very diversified. And these differences need to, to be taken into consideration when, if we want really to understand how anti-corruption might work in different contexts. And another thing that uh, I think it's relevant and that comes from social movement studies, it's a, a more recent development in social movement studies, is uh, the attention that has been paid to uh, social movement outcomes. So we, you spoke before about successes. So in social movement studies, we don't speak about successes. We speak about outcomes and consequences of social movements because uh, defining what success is, is very problematic. For instance, we need to understand success for whom. So who defines what success is? Might be the movement organization itself or might be a more general understanding of what success is. This is why we tend to avoid the, the term success 
and we rather use outcomes, consequences, effects of social movements. So the literature on, on outcomes began to develop already late in the 70s, but it is still flourishing to a great extent. And uh, what I think is very useful to be taken from that literature that I think can speak a lot to corruption and anti-corruption scholars is that traditionally outcomes, of course, has been defined as the outcomes at the, in the realm of politics. That is to say, we speak about outcomes uh, related to, for instance, policymaking. So social movement organizations frequently organize and mobilize to produce a change at the policy level or to resist a change at the policy level. So this is the most, uh, probably the most studied type of outcome because it is easier to be measured as well. Because you can actually see when a piece of legislation is changed, you can actually see that this has been done. Or when funds are devoted to the implementation to that piece of legislation, to that policy, you can see that. You can see that in the parliamentary debates. You can see that in actually the laws that have been approved or, or not in a given country. But then uh, social movement studies on outcomes also expanded the understanding that we have of outcomes and went beyond the political realm. And here, I think it's particularly important when we deal with corruption and anti-corruption, because there are two other outcomes that are very important when we speak about social movements. The first one is outcomes at the cultural level. That is to say, movements, organizations, activists, and their public protests, what they do is also they produce new meanings about social problems that we have in society to the point that sometimes they even are able to frame certain issues for the first time as social problems, while before they were not recognized as social problems. And I think this is particularly important when we speak about corruption and anti-corruption, because uh, uh, the, the capacity of movement organizations to frame, for instance, a behavior or a patterns of behaviors as, as something that is problematic, instead as something that goes on as usual and that is not, is, you know, is not a problem after all. Because for instance, everybody else engaging this behavior and so why this, this should be a problem after all. Uh, movement organizations have the capacity and the ability to change the narrative, to produce new meanings, to engage in a work of signification. This is much more difficult to be measured as an outcome, of course. So we might do educated guess on the long term about the success, if we want to use uh, this term, of social movements in, in this direction. But it is, in any case, a very important type of outcome to be taken into consideration so that we might see certain movement organization as relevant, even if they do not, in the first place, attempt to change anything at the policymaking level, because they engage in the production of meaning about specific problems. Okay? And even if we think about corruption, there might be not only different definition of corruption, as we know, but also linked to that, many different definitions of the solutions to corruption. 
So what should be done? And how should we frame the problem? In that sense, for instance, movement organization might enrich the debate through their own knowledge about what corruption is. And this is frequently really a knowledge based on the lived experiences of people who suffers from corruption and wants to react against that and uh, and offers new interpretations uh, about what corruption is. This is a family of outcomes that are named cultural outcomes. And uh, there is another one, though, that is uh, also very, very important. And uh, this other family of outcomes is named biographical outcomes. Movement organizations through the engagement of individuals in their uh, campaigns, demonstrations, mobilizations, might change the life course of people who participate in those movements. So they do not produce uh, change, again, at the policymaking level. They, do not, they might not pro- even produce change at the, lev- at the cultural level through new meanings, but certainly frequent times they change the lives of the people who decide to take part in those movements. Well, that's very interesting and very eloquently put to, to understand what, what's behind the social movements. What, what I was interested in is in the le- recent years, we saw a lot of movements. Let's take the Fridays for Future movement or the Black Lives Matter movement last year that started very locally, but then really quickly spread all across the globe. And do you think something similar is in the future maybe possible with social movement against corruption, let's put it this way? Or is corruption such a regional or local problem and the differences between countries and regions and maybe municipalities differ so much in their problems with corruption that it's not possible to unify under under a common theme, under a common frame, let's say? Yeah, as you said, corruption is, uh, although there, there might be a general understanding of what corruption is, also among people that belongs to different countries, and if, so if also really dramatically different contexts. At the same time, what, I, what we are finding in, uh, in, in our research project currently is that really in each country then there is a more specific understanding of what corruption is. So there is the specification of the problem. Let, let's put it in this way. So we can start from a broader general understanding, but then when people act, they most of the times, not, not always, but most of the time, they tend to act, if not locally at the, at, you know, at the level of municipality, at least uh, nationally. So uh, with regard to their, their national borders in which they are, they are situated. And so it might be difficult, I think, because when, we th- when you think about, for instance, Fridays for Future, about climate change, climate change is, really is uh, uh, a problem that can be easily framed at the global level. And that let's see very easily the interconnections about whole human beings uh, no matter where they live. And uh, these also, to a certain extent, applied also to movements like the Me Too movements and the Black Lives Matter movements, both born in the US, but then they had uh, a spread, a quick spread in many other countries. But yet with those movements, uh, there has been sometimes a political translation 
or what it means to have a Me Too movement or a Black Lives Matter movement in other countries that are not the U.S. So this uh, work of translation of the issues has been very important in order to have the diffusion of these movements. This didn't happen so much with uh, Fridays for Future and the issue of climate change. It happened to a greater extent with uh, the Black Lives Matter movements, for instance. What does it mean to have to speak about race and 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 this and ethnic discriminations in Europe? That is a uh, yeah, context that is dramatically different uh, from the US. It is more difficult to speak about these issues here even more difficult than in the U.S. So um, a work of, of translation of these issues in, uh, for instance, when we speak uh, about this in Europe or in other, in other countries across the world needs to be done. So this work of translation was, is, I imagine, is even more important when we address uh, an issue like corruption. Okay, to be able to spread and to have... Uh, uh, a, a truly transnational movement about this issue. That said, when we think about the anti-austerity protest uh, that came as a reaction against the economic crisis and the way in which it was managed at the political level, and they erupted basically in 2000, starting late 2010, when we look at the frames, at the narrative about the economic crisis, and the mismanagement at the political level of the economic crisis. We see that certain frames were common and they were speaking about the corruption of the political elites. Okay, So you see these very well when you look at the Quinzeme, the, indig- the so-called indignado movement in Spain, the Gre- their Greek counterparts, Uh, the Occupy uh, Wall Street movements. But before that, when when you look at the uh, uprisings that uh, there has been in the um, uh, Middle Eastern, North African countries, uh, this frame was also there. Maybe it was not central, but it was there. And so these these, uh, mobilizations spoke to each other, spoke to each other to a great extent on this matter. But then there were a lot of uh, differences uh, between the countries, of course, because Occupy Wall Street was different than the King's M movement in Spain. And uh, also there was a common general frame. Then when you went more in depth, you understood that they were also, they were really deeply tied to the domestic political management of the economic crisis. Um, I personally have been thinking about a little bit and it relates to what triggers a social movement. And I mean, I come from a social psychology background and it seems to me that often a movement starts with a concrete situation, right? Like the death of George Floyd or for example, the Arab Spring starting with the Tunisian street seller who lit himself on fire. And I wonder if one of the challenges for anti-corruption movements is that it's often very difficult to find one concrete situation that basically encapsulates corruption because it's often, you know, it's, it's less tangible. I wonder if you could briefly comment on that, whether this is one of the problems to really unite people also maybe on a global level, because I could see that there is large potential if people similar to the other topics you mentioned would come together and show like, we are all against corruption, even though it might be different in the different context, but we all seem to care about the same thing. So I wonder if you think these 
while the lack of a concrete situational embedding of corruption is one of the challenges to actually have such a global movement? Yeah, I think this might be one uh, of the reasons. You know, corruption, and this is another issue that for me related to corruption that is very fascinating when we look at anti-corruption and the movements. So there are some issues on which social movement mobilize that whose negative consequences for the people are immediately visible. Uh, And uh, they are not only immediately visible, but it, it is easy to find the cause for that. Immediately. So think uh, again about uh, uh, the uh, Black Lives Matters mobilizations or the Me Too movement. So, it, you know, the, the relationship between the cause, the effects was uh, pretty straightforward. It was uh, uh, to some extent not to diminish the incredible work that those movements did, but it was to some extent uh, easier in terms of constructing the narrative around the issue. Corruption, this is something that I find extremely fascinating, is uh, rather unnoticeable in its uh, consequences uh, because it's not a big consequence that you experience once in your life and it's extremely upsetting and, uh, and so you, you want to act against that and others might join you because they all can see very clearly that was the the big negative effect of corruption. Corruption is more a matter of negative consequences that are lived on a daily basis by millions of people across the world in different contexts, for which though it is much more difficult to find the, the clear cause, so to say. And uh, since it is deeply ingrained in the daily life of the people, it is also more difficult to recognize that as such a big problem because it's part of our daily life the ways in which we go on I think uh, daily that render this less visible of course indeed uh, many of the collective actions in which uh, movement organizations engage when they deal with corruption and anti-corruption are related exactly to these issues so to make corruption visible and their end it's consequences visible. So think about the apps. There are many, many apps that have been developed uh, uh, in many parts of the world to render visible, for instance, the misallocation of public funding, for instance, to construct, uh, I don't know, public schools uh, or to repair roads and so on. So this is uh, uh, an attempt to render visible through the help of the people that live daily in uh, these situations, what happened, for instance, to public funds that have been allocated to do this and that thing. And uh, this is a way to render this visible, so to go beyond the invisibility. Or think about other types of platforms that tries to render visible not so much the consequence of corruption, but the corrupt transaction, uh, for instance, uh, uh, between, for instance, a public official or and, uh, and, and a lay citizen that wants to have a public service. So these are not protests in the streets. So this is not the, the usual form of uh, collective action that we uh, find in social movements. But are important uh, collective actions 
because I try to render visible something that otherwise would remain hidden some, somehow. I also wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the research that you do on corruption on the ground, let's say. I come from a rather quantitative background and, and I know that you really do a lot of field work in the countries where the corruption occurs. So, and, and I'm always wondering then, this is obviously um, tied to a lot of dangers for the researcher and for your partners in the countries. So how do you maybe as a researcher on the ground, but also in your position right now as a principal investigator who is, let's say, responsible for these research projects. So how do you deal with these dangers that go hand in hand with doing corruption research in highly corrupt countries? Yeah, this is a, a very, very sensitive issue, uh, of course, because it tackles on something that is, more broadly speaking, very important when we speak about social and political sciences, uh, that is the issue of ethics and safety, ethics and safety that usually goes hand in hand, of course. And the safety is, of course, as you said, not just for us who conduct research, but also for the people who uh, kindly agree to become part of our research, for instance, uh, agreeing on being interviewed and agreeing on uh, you know, being observed in, in their daily activities as anti-corruption activists across the globe. So what we did is that, so at the very beginning, when uh, uh, the project was just starting and we had to face issues related to ethics and safety, I honestly thought for a moment that it is simply impossible to conduct research on certain countries because the risks are so high that you do not want to put uh, in danger anybody, being the researchers or the research participants. But then I also thought that it means uh, if we are not able to tackle these uh, safety issues in the proper way, it means that... Uh, There are certain countries in which we simply do not, cannot construct knowledge at all. And this, this is not a good thing because, you know, otherwise we risk to produce knowledge on what anti-corruption is only on the easiest countries in which to conduct research is, you know, after some precaution has been taken, not a big deal. But we know that to produce knowledge that is really encompassing And that can be can speak to many different contexts at the global level. We also need to be to take into consideration those countries in which it seems to be kind of impossible, or if not impossible, very, very dangerous to do research. So I will not disclose here all the, the precautions that we took to be able to conduct research in those countries as well. Uh, but we basically we reflected very carefully for at least one year about how to do research in countries that apparently they cannot be investigated from this perspective. How can we construct a safe, as and most importantly also for the research participants and for our collaborators in the field? And which are the limits that we decided we do not want to trespass? And there are many limits, so we put limits for ourselves. We don't want you to, to be there and, and do whatever research for the sake of constructed knowledge. So don't get, get me wrong. So we know which are our limits, but within those limits, some kind of research can be done. Okay. So some, some kind of knowledge 
can be constructed also on those countries without putting at an incredible risk the people with whom we work. And since this is a very sensitive issue, again, I'm, you know, I cannot really disclose what we are doing and how we are doing that uh, in certain countries that we study. Uh, because otherwise, again, this is part of the safety <laughs> uh, policies that we that that we uh, thought about with the with the research team. So I, I stop here on this. But the, the thing is, the message that I would like to 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 leave you with is that uh, even in those countries in which it seems impossible to conduct research, especially today with digital technologies, we we might be able to gather some information that is relevant so that also the people who act in those countries can see their effort recognized as anti-corruption activists. And if I can add another point in this, that is relevant to your question, but more generally relevant for when we study anti-corruption, what we found is that sometimes it is easier for us to interact with people uh, if we do not speak about corruption in a kind of a direct way, but we rather focus our attention to something that is deeply related to anti-corruption, that is the struggles for accountability and transparency. Because corruption is a highly polarizing and politicized issue in many, many country contexts, not everywhere. But in some places, being someone who studies corruption and is interested in anti-corruption gives you immediately a political label and a political position in the spectrum going from the uh, far right to the far left. Okay? So we found that many activists themselves do not want to be called and do not even name themselves as anti-corruption activists how they frame themselves and how we interact with them is around the more neutral issue of accountability. For it's very, very interesting. Um, it's also very reassuring to learn how many precautionary measures you take and how responsible you approach doing research in some of these areas where there is a real threat attached. I, I, I just want to quickly add, I think besides that there are some countries where it's more difficult to study corruption. I think there are also certain types of corruption that are more difficult and easier to study. And I think you often see a lot of papers that are published on the more, let's say, low-hanging fruits, which are less uh, tricky to study. But we would love to shift the topic slightly uh, because more some of your more recent research has been dealing with a combination of social movements and how ICTs information communication technologies can help to bring about social movements and maybe help in promoting accountability. And maybe we can start off with, a, well, a question that Christopher and I have been discussing before the interview, and that is, we're currently on a podcast. It's called the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast, and it's a digital medium. It's published only online. Do you think this kickback actually counts as an ICT for anti-corruption? Yeah, I, okay, I think it counts. And, uh, you know, reflecting on whether such a podcast might be considered or not as uh, a form of, uh, let's say, action 
uh, against corruption is very interesting because it tackles on at least a, a couple of uh, issues that we deal with when we consider anti-corruption and digital media from the grassroots. Uh, the first one, and this is a more common trend in social movements, but I think it also applies to a great extent to anti-corruption movements as well, uh, is that uh, while in the past, movement organizations as collective actors were incredibly important, relevant, and central as triggers for mobilizations, today, due to digital media and the spread of many forms of digital media, individuals also became incredibly important to trigger collective action. So this is linked, of course, to the diffusion of social media platforms, uh, like, for instance, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and the many others that we have today that have been constructed more around the individual and uh, its ability to participate in the social media platforms and not so much on collective actors, of course. Uh, So Facebook is and Twitter is a highly individualized and individualizing uh, social media platform. Of course, then collective actors, you know, appropriated these platforms as well in the forms of collective actors. But frequently, these collective actors uh, do not need, for instance, to involve a lot of people to function properly through the support of uh, uh, digital media, uh, for instance. So uh, this uh, podcast that, if I understood correctly, relies uh, on the efforts of three people on, uh, in order to, to be produced, sustained, spread, and so on, uh, might be seen as one of specific type of collective action that actually is rooted in three individuals that come together and produce these uh, podcasts, for instance. And the other issues related to this, you are not, of course, promoting in a direct way any kind of mobilization, of course, but uh, who knows what will happen in the future, we will see. (laughs) But in any case, uh, right now, uh, this can be considered uh, a form of collective action in which individuals plays an important role, and that tackles not so much contentious forms of protest, but the production of meaning, knowledge, awareness uh, about a specific issue. And this is very common, as, we, uh, as I was pointing out even before, when we deal with uh, anti-corruption, because corruption is an issue that is difficult to be understood in all its complexity, It is difficult to see their consequences because they are deeply ingrained in the daily life of people uh, and so on and so forth. So many of the collective actions, again, seeks to promote the visibility of this issue and the awareness around this issue, for instance. So I would say definitely, yes, this is part of, uh, if not a broader movement against corruption, but it is uh, part of a constellation of collective actions that we have uh, through digital media all over the world. The problem is that frequently these collective actions uh, remain fragmented and difficult to be sustained over a long period of time. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. Maybe next time when we we talk, we can talk about the the kickback movement and not the big <laughs> kickback podcast. Exactly. Um, so I wanted to to ask you a little bit more about the role of social media in political protest and in political protest about corruption in in specific. And um, one thing that you always hear when you read up on yeah social protest or political protest online is the the criticism of selectivism or low cost protests that people just need one click sign a petition and and think they are changing the world but they are actually are not changing the world <laughs> and another thing is i read a paper when i first got interested in the topic it's called safety valve or pressure cooker and maybe you know the paper and it actually deals with the topic that governments who are corrupt they actually allow this sort of online protest they could have the means to censor the protest but they are allowing it deliberately because they think this kind of protest online is not very dangerous to them. It can serve some sort of, of self-develop, people let off steam and have a way to, to put their anger or their frustration somewhere and then they put it online and the governments allow this a lot more because they don't fear it as much as people going to the streets and really changing something. So what do you think about this criticism that is often involved when we deal with social protest online? First of all, I think that any uh, form of engagement, being it digital or not, is uh, in any case uh, an act from uh, her or his uh, you know, daily life and let this person engage with a broader community of people, being it temporarily on a temporary basis for just uh, one minute because that's just a click, just assigning a petition or a more sustained effort that goes on over the months, for instance, when people engage in collective discussion in online forum and, and so on. Uh, it is, in any case, always a form of engagement that we never can know where that would lead. Maybe one day it's to sign on an online petition and there would be a chain of engagement that develop over time. I think that frequently we tend to understand these, uh, the uh, so-called uh, clicktivism, as it is also named, uh, in a rather static way without considering that uh, uh, what happens uh, to the people that engage in these forms of activism over time. So we need studies uh, on these. We don't have, I think, to my knowledge at least, uh, there are no studies that follow Uh, individuals who engage in this form of activism uh, over a considerably amount of time to see what really happens in their lives. If then, as a result of signing an online e petition, then they decide, for instance, to go out in the streets on a completely unrelated topic, but at least uh, they uh, begin to be interested in politics. And I'm saying this because uh, one of the triggers for people to be engaged in mobilization is having been socialized uh, to previous forms of engagement and recognizing that these forms of engagement might be possible and uh, are not that dangerous, so to say, or do not signal that you are necessarily an extremist if you engage in some form of uh, political participation. So I tend to be more optimistic uh, when I look at these forms of engagement because I think that still we really do not know what happens next 
And I use this knowledge that we have in social movement studies about the being socialized to protest to any forms of political engagement as one of the reasons why you will be then, when there is the next demonstration, the next e-petition, willing more to be engaging those. Uh, so this is what I think, and this is my optimistic side that is speaking. Then we also know that when, uh, especially when we deal with forms of collective actions that uh, are deeply tied to the uh, individual's engagement through social media. So, and they have also been given names. So for instance, uh, Bennett and Sagerberg speaks about connective actions in which uh, collective movement organizations really are not that so relevant anymore, but rather it's uh, the individuals that are connected through the platforms that engage uh, in uh, political participation and that create online communities that then might trigger or not also uh, demonstrations, protests, and so on in the streets of, of our cities. Okay, so these are fragile because uh, they are difficult to be sustained over time. To become something more stable, there might be a passage from connected individuals who discuss online from the formation of an actual movement organization that becomes then a collective actor in the strict sense. Uh, But when we look at these forms of mobilization, frequently we do not see this happening because it is difficult to sustain over time, you know, this type of engagement and to transform this type of engagement into something that is more stable and that can uh, become a collective voice. Also, they are fragile in another sense, especially when we are speaking about commercial social media platforms. They are fragile because all the interactions that happens on these platforms, all the materials that is exchanged on these platforms uh, is not basically owned by the people who produce them, but by the platform itself. The platform become irrelevant actors and these platforms are not made to facilitate political engagement. They are made to make profit. They are made to gather data on the people who interact on them and to sell this data to other companies uh, to support micro-marketing techniques and so on. And uh, so this is why... When we use, when, when people engage with and also in anti corruption through these platforms, there is this added layer of fragility. They are not the owners, they do not control the platform themselves. But then there is another fragility that is linked to these. Activists are not the only ones who use these platforms, governments do this as well. And they infiltrate these platforms with fake accounts, for instance. And in this way, they are able to gather information on what the activists are doing. For instance, you know, when we go from social media platforms, strictly speaking, to uh, another type of application that are instant messaging platforms. So I'm speaking about WhatsApp, Telegram, and so on. So there is this belief that Telegram is more secure than WhatsApp, for instance. Many activists use Telegrams across the world to organize themselves. 
But in many countries, there have been evidences that uh, governments against which activists were protesting were able to infiltrate through their police forces, uh, telegram groups, uh, and to arrest people because they were gathering evidence through telegram. So we always need to think that activists might use these platforms, uh, but they are, not on, they are not the only players in the game, definitely. And that digital media can be used in many ways, and they can be used also to, to oppress, to survey, and to repress uh, the mobilization that, that, that goes on. So related to what you asked me before uh, about the you know, governments actually allowing people to express their anger online, because then at the end of the day, they know that this will not be transformed into something more concrete. I think this is, this is one perspective that we might have. But again, we never know when something then actually will be transformed into something more concrete. There might be communities of people online that goes on for years and years, just discussing, just sharing information about what corruption is or the lived experiences of corruption uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then at a certain point, because of other external events that might function as further triggers, these communities might transform themselves on a powerful, massive protest online because a critical community has been created and sustained over time in a kind of a, not in a mobilizing stage, but in a kind of latency stage in which discussion goes on and trust is constructed amongst the people who participate. So I, I tend not to have a definite opin that opinion on this issue because uh, there are many examples uh, in which we saw the transformation of this online community into something more concrete. They are not sufficient alone, but may, they might become a, a component of broader mobilizations. Yeah, I think this is actually a very positive conclusion that even this maybe low-cost protest and signing a petition discussing these topics online might have an impact down the road if more and more people get together. And I really like the idea of collective uh, action. So this is moving the collective action idea maybe to the digital space. I think this is very interesting. So we are almost out of time, Alicia, unfortunately. I think we could chat for another hour yeah. or two. We would like to close our interview off with something we call the pick of the podcast. So maybe this could be a book, this could be a TV series or a movie or something, something that relates to corruption and even sometimes better explains the mechanisms behind it than reading a paper, for example. So do you have something that really caught your interest maybe in, in pop culture or something like this? Yeah, I don't know if it's pop culture, but I recently watched an incredible documentary on corruption that maybe you already know. It's named uh, Collective. I think it's a, it's a great documentary for two reasons. The first one is because in itself, uh, uh, this documentary is able to render the consequences of corruption extremely, extremely visible in a given context. That is the Romanian context uh, and uh, the health sector in particular. And the second one is because it shows uh, yet another actor that we did not discuss 
discuss a lot today because we focused on movements and activists, but yet another actor that is important and frequently it becomes an ally of movement organizations when not blurring into a form of activist in activism itself. That is the role of journalism and investigative journalism in countering corruption. So I think that this documentary, Collective, is, is a great documentary, not just for the story that it tells, but because it helps us reflecting on these uh, two, two other issues, the invisibility and visibility of the consequences of corruption and the role of investigative journalism as a form of activism in itself. Well, thank you so much, Alicia, for all the insights you shared. And uh, also, I mean, there were so many interesting bits and pieces that we all going to summarize in, in the show notes. I hope that people can follow up on it and maybe get inspired to engage in collective and connective action against corruption. So thank you so much, Alicia. And we hope we get a chance for a part two or three uh, further down. The I'm road. always available. The project will be, will be go on for at least another three years or so. We can chat more later on when we have, uh, you know, when we have gathered the data and, uh, and try to understand what is going on with activism and anti-corruption in the different countries. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Alicia's work, check out the show notes of this episode. In the end, Alice also mentions the synergies between social movements and investigative journalism. Luckily, we already recorded three great interviews with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists David Barbosa and Frederik Obermeier. Make sure to listen to them as well. Again, you can find the links in the show notes. As always, if you like what we do, there are three main ways to support us. Write us a review on your favorite podcast platform, Follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP or if you can spare a few bucks, become a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash kickbackpodcast. Everything we receive goes directly back into the podcast. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke with music by Kaihan Gorkar. That's it for today. Have a great week.